Welcome back to Evangelion, interpreting scripture and life. And the next in our installment, uh, unpacking Galatians in a month. It would be difficult to overestimate the significance of the section of Galatians that we're going to look at in this podcast. I mentioned to you in the last podcast that uh, this represents the third of three um, consecutive elements of narrative that Paul relays in Galatians, all of which have a very similar core. At their heart, all of them depict um, Jewish marginalization of uh, a particular group uh, on the basis of some kind of allegiance to the law, which results in um, marginalization of, uh, of, a, of a particular group um, and uh, a sense of social distancing, um, a term which is uh, very current at the moment for completely other reasons. The first of them is Paul's own persecution of the ancient Jesus movement, which he alludes to towards the end of chapter one. Then at the beginning of chapter two, Paul mentions the marginalization of Titus by a group of what Paul refers to as false brothers, who by all accounts attempted to try to coerce Titus into being circumcised, even though as Paul tells us, he was Greek. The third of these situations then is the one which we will concern ourselves in this podcast. And it is um, an almost alarming event in early church history. Indeed, it was so controversial uh, that various uh, people in antiquity tried to uh, either use it to undermine the integrity of the Christian faith at large, uh, or to use it as the basis of um, attacks on, on particular apostolic figures, uh, or indeed to explain it away. Um, an ancient Jewish Christian group called the Ebionites, who had um, their own uh, gospel, used this incident that we're about to read about in Galatians 2, 11 through 14, as the basis for an assault on the integrity of Paul. The early Gnostic um, leader Marcion used the very same um, piece of text to attack Peter. Marcion was uh, a typical Gnostic and a raging anti-Semite. He despised all things Jewish. Uh, in his version of the New Testament, he, he expunged any part of it which, um, which in, in any way spanked of Old Testament influence. Early Christian critics, early critics of the um, early Christian movement, like Celsus and Porphyry, um, repeatedly would refer to this incident to show that the Christian church was disunified and a house of cards. And the whole episode was so uh, embarrassing um, that uh, various patristic writers again tried to explain the whole thing away. Uh, Clement of Alexandria claimed that the Kirfas, who is named in the incident, is actually not the Apostle Peter, but another Kirfas, who was a member of the, the group of 70 uh, disciples that Jesus chose um, in, in Luke 10 and in, other, and in, uh, in Matthew. 
and um, Origin, for example, and even St. Jerome uh, claimed that the entire event had been staged by Peter and Paul in order to highlight the uh, difficult issues uh, of Jewish and Gentile social mixing. So you can see that this event was so controversial in early Christian history that um, it, it captured the thoughts of various writers who used it as ammunition uh, for their own religious and political agendas. And so this is the incident in question, Galatians 2 in verse 11. Paul writes, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not acting straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Remember, I mentioned that you should keep in mind um, in uh, Galatians 2 verse 2, where Paul writes that he laid out the gospel that he preached to the Gentiles, which was clearly going to be an, at least an, an initially difficult meeting as he was addressing um, his Jewish brethren about this, his Jewish Christian brethren. But he pulled them aside and had a private meeting. It's not as if Paul didn't know where and when it was important to have a private meeting with his followers uh, or with um, uh, other Christian leaders. But in this incident here at this meal table in Antioch, this mixed meal table where Jewish believers and Gentile believers were eating together, Paul writes that he opposed Cephas to his face in Galatians 2.11. This was um, a fraught and tense showdown, a public showdown between two respected early Christian leaders. Paul, who had taken the, Gentile, the, the gospel to the Gentile world, and Peter, who was Jesus' closest associate. And here they were, facing off in front of other disciples. Paul writes that he opposed Peter, Cephas, to his face because he stood condemned. There was no doubt in Paul's mind that Peter's actions here were utterly contrary to the gospel. Paul writes in verse 12 that before the coming of certain men from James that Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. Now it's not clear um, whether Paul is suggesting that James sent these men or whether these were just colleagues of James or friends of James who just wanted to know what did this kind of social mixing look like? What did it look like and feel like for Jewish and Gentile believers to eat together? Now, 
if we take the evidence from Luke in the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, it would seem to suggest that James had no idea that these men had gone to Antioch. Um, and certainly they didn't go with his authority. At least there's no hint of that in Luke. But what's also um, apparent um, from the uh, Jerusalem Council is that the agreements that were reached didn't really broach the subject of social mixing. So the Jerusalem Council, of course, met to debate the question whether or not Gentiles needed to effectively become Jews in order to take their place amongst the people of God. And the conclusion was that no, they didn't. But James and Peter and the other leaders there concluded that there were certain acts of Jewish purity that they ought to abide by. Um, they were not to eat blood or anything containing blood or the meat of strangled animals. And they were to abstain from all sexual immorality um, and anything to do with idol worship. Um, now, later on, Paul takes a slightly different stance when he's discussing these issues. But for now, it's fair to say these, these were the agreed upon terms from the Jerusalem Council. But what the council did not decide upon was the level to which there should be any social mixing between Jewish and Gentile believers, or what that should even look like. And so these questions were still very much left up in the air. Now, as far as Paul was concerned, and it seemed to be the case that Peter was concerned, because Paul says that prior to the coming of these men from James, um, Peter had no problem eating with the Gentiles. In Paul's mind, it was absolutely clear. Social mixing should have no boundaries. There should be no ethnic boundaries, no class boundaries, no gender boundaries. There should be no boundaries. God's people should be one. They should be. It should be. Uh, they should be mixed. They should be able to get on and eat together. And of course, eating together in the ancient world spoke volumes considerably. It said more um, than it does today. Who you ate with in the ancient world very much said something about who you considered an equal, who you were willing to share your bread with and share the table with. Um, you were willing to consider your social equal in all respects. So for Jew and Gentile Christian to sit at the table and eat together was a mark of an acknowledgement of their equality, of their brotherhood. And yet when these colleagues of James turned up in Antioch, Paul tells us that Peter began to withdraw and hold himself aloof. And the reason Paul gives is fearing the party of the circumcision. Now, this must include at least these men who have come uh, from James, whatever that means. But perhaps it also extends to any um, members of the so-called circumcision party. And by that, we can assume that Paul means any group of people who assume that Gentiles really do need to be circumcised um, if they are to be inducted into the people of God. So it was fear that made Peter withdraw. It wasn't truth, it was fear. He was afraid, according to Paul. And then he says in verse 13 that the rest of the Jews joined in him 
in hypocrisy. Joined him in his hypocrisy. There's no doubt in Paul's mind that Peter is being a hypocrite, that Peter is being disloyal, that Peter is not being faithful uh, to the demands of the gospel. And it's probably worth bearing in mind that the Greek word that's translated um, hypocrisy um, literally means um, play acting, a feigned part. Um, It means uh, deceit by, um, by hiding the truth. Uh, The the term was often used in um, theatrical contexts uh, to describe um, actors who wore masks. In many ways, it's reasonable perhaps to suggest that this is what Paul is saying about Peter. It was almost like he'd been wearing a mask and now suddenly the true Peter had been revealed. This is an extraordinary thing to say, an extraordinary charge to level at none other than Peter, who was uh, throughout the Gospels, um, Jesus's closest associate possible in the fourth Gospel that the so-called beloved disciple was closer. But even there, you get a sense um, of the closeness between Jesus and Peter. And you'll notice again in verse 13, that there's one person who Paul actually names He says generically the Jews joined Peter in his hypocrisy, even to the point, he says, that Barnabas himself was carried away. Now, remember what we said um, in Acts 9. Barnabas was the one believer in the church in Jerusalem who was prepared to give Paul the time of day. Everyone else was terrified of Paul. Barnabas was the only one willing to listen to what Paul was saying and say, well, look, this man is preaching the very same message we're preaching. And it was Barnabas who extended a right hand of fellowship to Paul. And you could just imagine that this was like a knife in Paul's back. He felt totally betrayed and let down by Barnabas to the point where he names Barnabas. The other Jews generically follow Peter in his hypocrisy, but even Barnabas, the one person who should have known better because um, he was Paul's um, closest ally. And as I've suggested, I think this was really the thing that separated Paul and Barnabas. Um, In Acts 15, we're told that Paul and Barnabas split and um, Barnabas went off with John Mark, who we find out a little later in uh, Colossians was uh, a relative of of his, um, whilst um, Paul went off with um, Silvanus, or or Silas as he's called. But that fracas involving John Mark, as I say, I think was the straw that broke the camel's back. I don't think Paul ever truly recovered from this betrayal um, of Barnabas at Antioch and we have to assume that seeing as Paul didn't relay some great victory here as he normally does when there is a victory that Paul lost this battle it it would seem to me that the breakdown of communications that happened in Antioch was not resolved properly otherwise Paul would have told us so it would have lent weight to his argument uh, as as he he usually does I mean you just need to read um, 
2 Corinthians 1 and see how Paul relates the victory after the troublemaker in Corinth was effectively turned on by the uh, Corinthian church to the point where Paul had to say, okay, enough is enough, leave him alone, forgive him now. When these kinds of um, ecclesiological breakdowns, these breakdowns of communication in, in the church happened and they were resolved successfully in Paul's favor, he would relate them. The fact he doesn't relate a victorious end to this scandal is strong suggestion that Paul was um, shouted down, that he lost this battle, that um, uh, his his angst at Peter um, didn't score him any points. And in verse 14, we see a repeat of the phrase which Paul originally um, used in verse 5. Remember in chapter 2, verse 5, when these false brothers tried to coerce Titus into being circumcised, and Paul says that they didn't yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. Well, here in chapter 2 in verse 14, uh, Paul says that he saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. And you see these two uh, events are related. In both of these events, Gentiles were being marginalized because of pressure from Jewish Christians on the basis of some aspect of the law. In this case, it was to do with social mixing. In the case of Titus, it was to do with circumcision. But in both cases, pressure from Jewish Christians marginalized Gentiles. And that's what leads me to think that in Paul's mind, the truth of the gospel has something to do with the equality amongst people because of the gospel. Ethnic equality, which has now been established by the gospel. If Paul allowed Titus to be circumcised, it would suggest a sense of social hierarchy, that Jewish Christians are more important than Gentile Christians. Similarly, if Peter had been allowed to withdraw from the table, it would have created um, a sense in which it was right to marginalize uncircumcised Gentiles, that they were somehow second division believers. Though this seems to be in Paul's mind the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel is social equality on the basis of the gospel. And to violate that is to violate everything that Jesus stood for. And so Paul challenged Kephas to his face, saying, if you, being a Jew, normally live like the Gentiles, in other words, normally have no problem eating with the Gentiles, how is it that now you completely do a 180 degree turn just because these um, people from James turn up? As I've said, it's difficult to overestimate just how important this segment is. It's the last segment before the thesis statement of Galatians, which comes in verses 15 through 21, where we get the introduction of this very key vocabulary about justification by faith and not by uh, works of the law. And, we, and as we'll see in the next podcast, it's, it's very important to understand that that language is directly connected to this event the truth of the gospel being compromised. I want you to imagine for a moment that you um, are a member of a particular ethnic group and you live in a very um, parochial village somewhere 
where you are surrounded only with people from your own ethnic group. Then you leave that little village and you go to a university in a very cosmopolitan city where there's all sorts of cultures and races and ethnic groups. And one day you're at a party surrounded by all these different groups and you've made friends with them and um, a whole new world has been opened up to you. And then a few of your friends from your little village come to the party and suddenly you withdraw from all the, um, the sort of cosmopolitan mixed group of friends that you now have and you only associate with your friends from back home. Well, in some ways, that's precisely the situation that Paul was facing. It's difficult, as I say, to overestimate just how embarrassing and strange and awkward and difficult this situation was for the Apostle Paul. It is incredibly difficult and always very sensitive when issues of how people from different cultural backgrounds mix and blend in a Christian community. It's always difficult to talk about. It's a hugely sensitive issue. It's one which we have to broach with um, a sense of uh, delicateness. It has to be one which we approach full of the Holy Spirit. There are cultural differences between people which can sometimes rear their heads in the way that we practice the faith. Ignorance of those cultural differences will cause um, friction. It should not be the case that there are um, black cliques and white cliques and Asian cliques in the church. It should not be the case that one group feels superior to another. We should understand one another's cultural differences but then we must always interpret those cultural differences through the grid of the gospel. The truth of the gospel is that we are all on an equal footing because of Jesus Christ. The truth of the gospel is that Jesus is now the lens through which we understand our self-identity. And it's through that lens that we must attempt and strive to almost reinterpret our cultural identity so that it becomes something we can celebrate and not something that causes divisions. There is simply no place for ethnic or gender-based or social hierarchy amongst God's people. To allow that kind of, uh, of, of, of cultural um, deficiency to enter the church and allow it to take root is to utterly deny the very truth of the gospel itself. It is to utterly deny everything that Jesus stood for and indeed died for.